So yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you though. You couldn't pay me to fucking work yeah, people, opening night. People are feral. They're feral. Like, yeah. like like when I saw those fucking weirdos walking around barefoot at like a Jersey Mike's last week. It's like, what are you people <laughs> doing? <laughs> yeah. I, I I feel like no shirt, no shoes, no service is yeah. a ubiquitous concept there that are rules exists for everywhere. This, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's a restaurant, dude. <laughs> if you're if you are the type of person who shows up to a sub shop with no shoes uh, in like June yeah. in New Bedford, no, well, this uh, was this was Wareham, but yeah, Wareham, fair enough. You, you can't be helped. Like that yeah, person, yeah, dude. These, and these were like young guys, so it was like three young dudes who looked like I don't know they're coming back from the beach or whatever, or like doing some kind of summer shit. Sure. One of them, one of them the had flip flops. Okay. Yeah, they looked like like college dudes, but then two of them yeah. are just standing there barefoot, and they all looked like, you know, what I mean, like they were just like simpletons, like, like yeah, and I, and the, they're just like standing there fucking barefoot in a sub shop, like what the fuck are you doing, dude? And I'm everybody that, knows like, if you're if you're gonna go get a sub, you bundle up, okay? Yeah, like put your fucking like, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, how are these people behind the counter not like? Bro, go put some fucking shoes on. You know how? I'll tell you exactly how, because those people are so dead behind their eyes <laughs> yeah. from the fucking garbage that they deal with on a daily basis that yeah. they're like, shoes, and I can't honestly, be bothered probably, with shoes. There, there'd be a good chance that those dudes would. Like, I mean, like... Are you yeah, really those dudes get... would probably just, like, spill <laughs> Pepsi out of the fountain all yeah. over the fucking floor or some atrocious shit. Like, yeah. steal all the money out of the tip jar. Yeah. The, it, it, there is next to nothing that's worth going yeah. toe-to-toe yeah, with the, the fucking... Yeah, the only reason I said this is because clearly, like, the, the manager or, like, owner was there. I'm like, listen, yeah. this is your job. You're the one who's supposed to tell the, the uh, shoeless freaks to put some fucking shoes on when they're in your sub shop. Dude, absolutely. Like, I wouldn't expect the minimum wage work. I, I wouldn't give a fuck if I was that. I would just want to get the fuck out of there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole scenario is absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and yeah. Work, working in feral. services, yeah, people yeah. are people are not okay. And I mean, it doesn't stop there. I, yeah. I don't like to name drop the place that I work on this show, but yeah. you know, I'm in food service. I work at a high end establishment, um, and throughout the entirety of COVID, people were absolutely like just bottom of the barrel the entire time yeah and this is not like a jersey mics this is like a hundred bucks a head on a normal night type of place and people were still completely unable to to both comprehend the rules or follow them in any (laughs) capacity it was it was it was so mind-numbing having to explain you know, we're six months in, and I'm having yeah. to tell people why they have to put on a mask, and they're like, well, this, this, and this, and I'm like, listen, man, get the fucking governor on the phone. I'm just a guy who <laughs> yeah. fucking takes orders at a restaurant. I know it's a nice restaurant, but I, I, I'm i not qualified to make this call for the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, so. man, I, I, I was, like, eternally shocked at the people, like, in, like, February of this year who still had the energy to argue about yeah. this shit. It's like, dude, it's... There's still people that have the energy to argue about it. Yeah. There are people now. Dude, it's... Ugh. There was a story I was going to tell you that I can't tell you without giving away where I work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to, well, but like... We can do it Suffice it to say, there have been successive, you know, miniature microcosms of the COVID disaster uh, on a town-by-town basis that have cropped up, and people are just like, but COVID's over. I can't... You can't ask me to do something else this soon after COVID. <laughs> 
I'm sorry, but it's uh, after the year Anything I went else. through, yeah. you can't possibly expect me to do something else after I just uh, argued about a mask for a year. Like it's like you're exhausted. You know, <laughs> I'm working eight hour shifts in a cloth mask, sweating yeah. through my fucking underwear. To bring you hot steak in the middle of summer. Yeah, dude, like peeling you... <laughs> that mask off my face at the end of my shift, like last night, I was not looking forward to doing that again. The best thing about allergy season was like sneezing 1,500 dude. times into my own nostrils. Absolutely the best. Yeah. So that being said, all that aside, I am totally down for no mask, no mask life, but yeah. I am vaccinated and I like fully expect that every mentally functioning adult be vaccinated because you know what? There are no, I, I'm fine. Are you fine? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. we both run Windows XP, which is not ideal. I would much rather be on 11, but like yeah. at the same time. And you know what? There's about to be a raffle. Next month in Massachusetts, five mm -hmm. vaccinated people can will win a million dollars. Fuck yeah, dude. I'm really worried that they're going to start prioritizing new vaccinations so yep. that they can, like, incentivize people to get that. Because I was vaccinated when I was supposed to be. Uh, they're not. And, it's supposed uh, to be randomly drawn, fully vaccinated people. Yeah. I don't buy, so. I don't buy it. No. Well, Massachusetts is still only, like, 55% fully vaccinated, so. Which is outrageous. Yeah. Absolutely outrageous. Vermont is already over 80%. Yeah, but Vermont has 1,500 people in it. So, like, that's still not that many people. <laughs> yeah, but it's still 80%. I feel like uh, Vermont and the new Cisco Brewery in New Bedford have the same maximum capacity. It's still 80%. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Like, 80% is 80%. Is. That still means that. Covering like, a lot of ground. You know, um, that's like right around we're the probably point where it's uh like herd immunity so we're probably overdue for another trip to the great state of vermont yeah and that's what i was gonna say like nobody visits vermont either yeah. you know what i mean not during the summer they do in the winter like skiing shit so like vermont right do that. now they're just like cruising man let's not go like to vermont let's go for like a hike or something cool yeah remember the last time we went you me yep. and my dad yep yeah, dude, that, that was, was a great awesome. trip we got the fucking awesome uh we got the quail at uh the fun trap brewery uh, we got venison no, 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 no. You got a uh, Venus I got venison. But your dad and I, each, we got the little, like, quail thing, and it was just, like, a full quail on the plate. I thought you guys got venison. No, no, it was quail. Because it was a tiny little quail, like the little bird. Oh. It was like... Well, I, I got venison. I didn't this get This is good podcast material. Venison. It was, like, this big, and I'm making the size with my hands. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's demonstrating the size. It was between 5 and 50 pounds. It was it was some it was size bird. It was 5 pounds, dog. It's a you quail. You guys know about a quail. They're small. It was like a, it was like a pound of, of meat. Yeah, just it a was, tiny if, little... It, that's it including like a, the bones. It was just a that. tiny little full bird. Yeah, tiny. It had some kind of, like... I don't remember. I, regardless. That beer was good, though. We had good beer up there. Von, yeah, Von Trapp was great. Freaking, um... Hill Farmstead. Yeah, Hill Farmstead, dude. That was Susan. that was one of the best beers I ever had, sitting out on that patio yeah. with you and my pops, fucking drinking an IPA while we waited for our turn in line to get our growlers filled. Yeah. That was a, a high-quality beer. Yeah, it was, yeah. There's, like, a few moments of beer drinking in my life that are legitimately special. Most of them were just, like, me pounding back. Yeah, like, most of them are dog shit. Yeah, just most like, of them were me just, like, trying to get so obliterated. Of Jenny. <laughs> oh, my God. But that was a good beer. Yeah, that was a legitimately well-spent beering. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, shit. Well, here we are. Uh, we found ourselves up, smack dab in the middle of episode 21. How are you? 
Uh, not too bad. How are you? Doing well. I, uh... Nice. I'm drinking a coconut limeade. Nice. Uh, I had a Waterloo uh, strawberry. It's actually, it's in this room, but it's so far away that I'm not going to get it unless we take a pee break, so... Yeah, it's outside the uh, masturbation cube. I've got a... There's this... Uh, I forget what they're called, but there's this non-alcoholic brewery that makes, like, a really solid non-alcoholic IPA. Yeah. And I only get them once a week when we record. Yeah, And nice. uh, so I'm having one of those. It's pretty good. Yeah. Sancho the cat is on the bed laying down, ready to hang out. He's in the prone zone. He's ready to go. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we may as well dive in. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> and away we go. chamber to a soft sound of dripping water pooling somewhere in the distance. A cold breeze brushes past you, sending shivers up your spine, and you turn with a start at the sound of ancient creaking hinges. As your eyes adjust to the darkness, you can make out a newly opened door through which a faint pale green glow emanates. Following the light, you feel an increasing sense of dread, but you are compelled to walk forward. As the light grows stronger, you make out two shapes ahead of you, vaguely human, and yet somehow more ghoulish. They are, or once were, men. The taller one is slouched, soft and chubby, with a knit cap to hide his baldness and the faint outline of strange nipples poking through his slayer graphic tee. The shorter, also soft and chubby, wears an ironic Hawaiian shirt and has the most beautiful dark mustache you've ever seen on an otherwise smooth, unintentionally hairless face. Both stare at you with cold, dead, unfeelingly stupid eyes. The tall one emits a low moan, apparently lost in the misery of his dumb existence. The shorter one flashes a devilish grin gesturing to a pedestal which sits between (laughs) and behind them. You could swear it wasn't there a moment before, and yet even if this thought occurs to you, you notice that it appears to be the source of the pooling green light that drew you here in the first place. The short ghoul speaks. Step forward, sweet supper listener. Choose a story from our collection. If you dare... (laughs) The hideous creature's cackle dies slowly in the echoing chamber, 
and you feel yourself moving towards the pedestal as if compelled. Resting upon the pedestal is a single, smudged, and ancient-looking manila folder, covered in the dust of millennia. Gingerly, you pick up the folder and blow away the detritus to reveal the words Top Secret stamped in big red letters on the front, which feels a bit, I, I don't know, on the nose. The larger ghoul places one gnarled, putrid hand firmly on your shoulder and intones, Open le file. <laughs> As the chuckle fades into the blackness, you reach out and grip the edges of the folder. And as you slowly open it, you feel your eyes widen as the edges of your vision blur and grow dark, narrowing down to a pinprick. And you feel yourself being hurled bodily through countless eons and unimaginable distances. You have been trapped and are now hurtling headlong through the darkest reaches of the netherverse towards the vile auditory realm known only as the left unsolved super secret mega deluxe murder mystery true crime files of terror. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So welcome back to Left Unread. It's episode episode twenty one. Um, and as I'm sure you have gathered by now, we are venturing back into, uh, I mean, it's still history. Uh, we're not, we're not a a, a true, true crime podcast, but we are um, definitely not a true crime podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely not a true crime podcast. I want that to be well known. Evan has a real problem with it, but I, I like true crime, uh, in, in small doses. And so when the opportunity comes up to kind of meld what we do with some version of that, um, I like it, so I'll probably be handling the bulk of those going forward. Um, who's to say, though? Maybe Evan will find something that really strikes his fancy. Nah. Nah, probably not. Nah, probably not. Um, so after Dyatlov, I, I, there was really only one other sort of mysterious happening that I that I had any interest in doing an episode on. Um, and it's actually going to be a two-part episode just because, you know, as I was researching it, I realized that it was probably too big of a topic to give due attention to in one episode. Um, and, and that, of course, dear, sweet, gentle listeners, is the story of Jack the Ripper, um, which a lot of people have heard of, but there's a little bit more to it than I think a lot of people know, a lot more to it than I knew prior to undertaking this episode. So Yeah, I remember um, not that long ago you said, this will be a short one episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I meant that wholeheartedly. That was uh, yesterday, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as I was wrapping it up, I was like, well, I thought I was going to be wrapping it up, and I was like, oh my god, there's so much to talk about. Um, it's absolutely not going to be one episode, so. <clears throat> yep. um, that being said, we're going to kind of dive in, and uh, today we're going we're gonna to kind of get through the first half, and then next week we'll, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, so yep. we'll get to it when we get to it. Um, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I I am ready. Um, before we start, I just wanted, yeah. I mean, do we have an advertisement? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I believed you. And it would have it been okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so 
Today's episode is brought to you by Stabbin' Patrick Fitzpatrick's Knife and Bind Emporium, the number one combat weapon and tactical gear retailer in the greater London area. Come on down to old Stabby Patties and check out our fine <laughs> selection of combat knives, machetes, bowie knives, hunting knives, katanas, Okinawan Sai, shuriken, bastard swords, gladii, long swords, and of course our various bindings, ropes, leather straps, zip ties, and more. We are contractually obligated to inform our valued customers that all knives and bindings are purely decorative and or ceremonial. However, that will not stop one of our knowledgeable sales associates from getting you properly equipped with a variety of tactical options designed to maximize your advantage over any prey, non-human or otherwise. So come on down today to Stabbin' Patrick's in Whitechapel and rip your way through these prices with promo code LEFTUNSTABBED today. <laughs> I like it. As a, as a, as a, a guy who owns a sword, I, <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I would go. I do own an axe, too. Uh, I, I, once we started making this podcast, I gave myself permission to finally give in and buy weaponry. Yeah. And, uh... I have never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. Owning a sword rocks. I'm yeah. going to just put it out there. So if anybody out there wants wants one, yeah. get one. Yeah, I do have uh, a, uh, I think it's a Bowie knife. I have like a big one that I uh, I got really for no reason, but I was going camping in the woods and uh, I was like, you know what? Now I can buy this. This was like when I was like 20 years old. Yeah. Fuck it. Is that the trip where you got like uh, sick on the mountain and all that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where I hung back uh, with our other friend who was, like, he couldn't, like, finish it. And then the next morning, I got, like, wicked sick and just, like, puked all over the side of it. And then yeah, kept going. Yep. And you finished. Well, I'm proud of you. Yeah, out on the Kankamangus. Yep. Kankamangus, buddy. Yep. Um, Corky Messner, pirate captain of the Kankamangus. No, I think Corky Messner was a guy who was running for state senate in fucking New Hampshire. Yeah, and the last time I'm I was sure up there, he was there, some kind of libertarian pervert. Yeah, he he was a he no he wasn't even he was really? a MAGA guy. He was a MAGA guy. Oh, he yeah, wasn't yeah. even a libertarian. Oh, so this he is was, recent. Recent. Yeah, he was a neo-Nazi. I was up there with my nice. with my partner, and uh, uh, we were hiking around the Kankamangas, and we kept seeing signs for him, and so I decided that he was a river pirate. Nice. So I just kept saying like, "Vote Corky Messner, river pirate of the Kankamangas." Um, <laughs> And I'll always remember that name, because yeah. I mean Corky Messner. Let's 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 get real. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, um, are you ready to dive in? <clears throat> yeah. Are Are you Fuck ready yeah. to dive in, brother? I was born ready. All, right. All I uh, do is Sancho, dive. Sancho, are you ready to dive in? He's just sounds turn- like a yes to me. Yeah, he's just <laughs> turning around to go back to like he woke up with like a little grumble and he's turned like, Can around. You please, honestly, not. <laughs> yeah. If it's All not right. head scratches, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Not interested. Yeah. Uh, good spot, bud. So it's 1888. Uh, it's the height of the Victorian age, which stretches from roughly 1820 to 1914-ish. It's not like a hard and fast date, but 
Um, London is an absolutely bonkers place to be. Uh, Britain's monarch, Victoria, who lends her name to the era, Mm -hmm. reigns over a golden age of British global hegemony. Uh, Gone are the days when giants and Trojans and Romans and Saxons can bully this little Atlantic island. You might remember this from the last episode where we discussed all sorts of shenanigans that had overtaken the the island of Britain. Yeah, we've done um, uh, we've done one or four episodes on it. At least at least one, but at most four episodes. Yeah. Uh, the British now control massive overseas imperial holdings, and they dominate the world through impressive military and industrial capabilities. Uh, society was highly stratified and rigid, with the Victorian era being famous for public resurgence of puritanical social norms and customs surrounding basically every area of day-to-day life. Despite the fact that more than three-quarters of the population of Britain are considered working class, the nation as a whole is extremely strong and prosperous. Overseas colonies in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean provide a massive influx of resources and cheap and or free labor uh, of native people with which to process these resources. That's right, folks. The British engaged in slavery, and they may have abolished it in the homeland, but they were fucking assholes everywhere else in the world. And of those working class people, they were oftentimes awarded such luxurious sleeping, uh, sleeping setups as literally sitting down and hanging on a rope in front of you. They didn't even sit down. They stood up. Yeah, and that's where the well, term hungover comes from. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, those places were called, like, hangabouts or something. Ten and, penny and hangovers and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, you, you, you spent four, like I think it was four pence, and you could yeah. uh, sleep with a, a taut rope hung from wall to wall, and you would yeah. drape your arms over it and stand up. And the only reason that I'm okay with us talking about this now is because I, I, I cut it out of the episode because it was <laughs> taking up too much space. Yeah. But we're going to talk about it anyway. And you would yeah. hang over it and fall asleep hanging up. And people are always like, I couldn't sleep hanging up. It's like, if you were shit-faced and exhausted enough, you <laughs> yeah. absolutely could. Working and like one thing you 16-hour sh- days because there were no labor laws. One thing laws. you should understand is that everybody in Victorian London was some combination of shit-faced, <laughs> exhausted, and overworked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> every single person was... Was living a bad life every day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, basically, it's good to be a British aristocrat right now. Um, it's not so great to be fucking Literally anyone else. else. Like yeah. they're having a bad time. But yeah. overall, the face of the British Empire is 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 one of golden age. Um, and so, <laughs> beneath the shiny veneer of prosperity and progress that publicly marks the era, there is something dark and festering beneath the surface. And no, I'm not talking about the endemic societal racism, sexism, classism, or the rise of substance abuse or child labor, though all of these are present in spades and would merit a complete episode's worth of discussion. Uh, I'm talking about one sick fuck in the horrific slum of Whitechapel who has decided that brutally murdering sex workers is a good and nice way to spend your time stabby patty and trust me folks it's gonna get yucky uh so let's dive in and explore the wild and wacky exploits of the person widely regarded as the quote first serial killer jack the ripper uh so we're just gonna examine Whitechapel in 1888 because people are probably asking themselves as i did What's that? Is that a deathcore band with like a bunch of shitty songs and like one good song, which I'll probably play right here? Right on the disease, the 
Yeah, it is, but it's mostly a place in London. <laughs> Which we saw uh, live once. Wait, were you with us? No, that was pre-me, man. Yeah, I think that was uh, uh, maybe you guys on actually, Long Island. It was either in Connecticut or Long Island. You, our mutual friend from mm-hmm. our band turned us on to turned me on to that one Whitechapel song, which I will admit yeah. is fucking brutal. They have they have a couple cool songs, but uh, mostly not my cup of tea. And yeah. I'm not even opposed to deathcore as like a concept. There are a few bands that I think are kind of neat, but there's not enough going on sonically in that genre for there to merit like it's like the gent thing. Like there's like two bands that are worth listening to, and then there's not much else to explore yeah. sonically. So like it doesn't need to be a genre, you know? Yeah. Uh, although you know, if uh, if you were ever a metal metalhead in New England at that time, you were exposed to a ton of deathcore. Like I oh, still sure. think the band I've probably seen, and I've never been a fan of them. No, don't really like them. Are you gonna say the Acacia Strain? No, the band I've seen probably the most of any band ever oh. is Carnifex. I'm pretty sure I've seen them live like at least eight to ten times because yeah. they just always ended up playing every single show I went to. They would play at New England uh, Metal and Hardcore Fest every year. And I went there, like, every year for, like, five years in a row. So I saw them, like, five years in a row. Saw them at other shows, so it was just constant. Yeah, that that band is ass. I will (laughs) say, though, so the Acacia Strain, who, in my mind, is sort of, like, the originator of the modern, like, beat-down deathcore sound. Yeah, for sure. That band's fucking cool, and they still put out cool shit. And it's not complex music. It's, it's, It's pretty boring truthfully but i'll always have a soft spot for them and i've seen them probably four times for the same reason they're always on every metal festival bill in new england and um i think they they rip pretty hard yeah they're cool yeah there are bands in that genre they're never like exciting but there are some cool bands in that genre anyhow (laughs) i digress yeah we're looking at Whitechapel, the place um <laughs> so setting is perhaps a burp. <laughs> it wasn't even a burp. I burped already, and that was just like me. Oh, no, you just let clearing my throat. Yeah, just releasing uh, the pressure. <laughs> I'm just releasing the beast. Um, setting is perhaps the most important component of any story, and in the case of Jack the Ripper, I find that this is especially true. Yeah. Um, the London slum where the Ripper would do his ripping is as much a component of the tale as the culprit himself, and so it's worth exploring a little bit. Uh, Whitechapel is a neighborhood within the broader, informal collection of boroughs that were at the time known as East London. Uh, Generally speaking, East London, which is still a current neighborhood, but I'll kind of explain what I mean in a second. Um, East London is the part of the greater city, which is east of the city of London proper, which is actually just like a small and central part of the greater urban sprawl that we today call Greater London, uh, and north of the River Thames, which runs right through um, the city of London, roughly uh, west to east. Yeah. Whitechapel itself is formed around the nucleus of Whitechapel High Street, from which the neighborhood as a whole gets its name, and abuts the London Docklands and the river, making it a highly trafficked area full of the hustle and bustle of daily working life. And probably Um, smelled unbelievably dog shit. Oh, the whole city (laughs) was a a, a den of squalor. Um, Mm -hmm. We're were in the heart of the Industrial Revolution, and we'll talk about that, but like, it's a smog-filled, sewage-filled awful place to be and this there, is we're, we're, right on the fucking water yeah we're 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 at the early days of the industrial revolution so there are some some surprising uh, cultural and technological advancements but also things are still very much uh filthy 
You yeah. know, we talked about this a little bit in the Louis the Fourteenth episode. Don't imagine that it's too much better. You yeah. know, it's been it's been about a hundred years since then, and we're we're not really looking at uh, two hundred years, right? That was late seventeenth century. Yeah, it's about, you're absolutely right. It's been about two hundred years since then. Um, listen, folks, we're not historians, okay? Yeah, I'm just hey, a guy. We just I'm do just this a for shit. Fucking guy. Yeah, we're fucking around. This isn't even my full time job. Um, so. Yeah, it's been about 200 years, and not much has changed. You know, we're making strides, but big advances in hygiene are still, like, a couple decades forthcoming. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, it's formed around Whitechapel High Street. Um, and actually, this main street around which the neighborhood is formed itself is not, like, super dirty and decrepit. It's full of businesses and whatever. Uh, but what makes Whitechapel sort of unique and what garners it the reputation of being this like horrible dirty place is the vast interconnected spider web of small dark meandering side streets and alleyways which branch off from the main thoroughfares in basically every direction mm -hmm. and these aren't alleys like you might see in boston or new york or something these are like tiny can't stretch your arms across uh dark like really dingy alleys just um, imagine the game bloodborne sure yeah and they provide uh, ample real estate for all sorts of unsavory activities, which we will get to momentarily. Um, it's worth noting that in 1888, Whitechapel was actually not technically incorporated into either the county or the city of London. Nice. Um, and this story is actually going to be like a big part of the reason for that incorporation. Um, but by this point, the distinction is, is largely semantic because it's connected physically and it's informally and for all intents and purposes a part of the greater urban London area. So by 1888, the Industrial Revolution had absolutely gripped Britain in general and England in specific. Yep. Uh, the mass migration of the rural poor into the cities to work in the various mills and factories had led to a huge and, and incredibly rapid swelling of the population, particularly in the cheaper unincorporated boroughs outside the city proper and along the river where the wealthy elites would refuse to build or live because it was, as we said... A stinky, dirty place. The closer shit. you live to the Thames, which is where everybody dumps their <laughs> literal dog shit and human yeah. shit and bodies and sewage and industrial waste and everything. We didn't have modern sewage yet, people. No. And so this was like a really filthy, dirty river. And the Thames is still dirty, but it's not dirty like it used to be. You know, yeah, it's like I mean, uh, like Charles. all those rivers, like they they can never get clean again. Like um, yeah, was the, the Charles river? river? Yeah, the Charles River, or the one that like goes through like Pittsburgh is supposed to be like especially oh, uh, disgusting. So that's the Allegheny and the yeah, Monongahela, yeah, yeah. which meet to form the Ohio. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, filthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be just Any of my family horrific. listening will know why I know that. But um, yes, the Allegheny <laughs> and the Monongahela yeah. form the Ohio. Yeah. Uh, so the promise of jobs also brings a huge influx of, quote, foreign laborers. Um, and I say foreign in quotes because some of these, like, foreign laborers are just people from, like, Ireland and, to a lesser extent, Scotland. And uh, then from the rest of Europe. I mean, these – we're not talking about, like um, – some of these people were from within the British Empire is my point. Yeah, but they're but, still considered know, foreign because they're <laughs> yeah. According to the uh, Londoners, yeah, yes. the, Ir the Irish would have been foreigners. They were foreign, worthy um, of being colonized. This is prior to Ireland gaining its mostly independence. Yeah. Um, so uh, largely, this meant Irish and European Jewish immigrants in Whitechapel. Um, mm -hmm. So Jews that were escaping pogroms, mostly in Russia, but other parts of Eastern Europe, were fleeing west. And they were hearing about 
the rapidly industrializing city of London. And they were saying, great, opportunities for me and my family. And they would get there and everybody would just be like, what the fuck are you doing here? And we it's thought like, we kicked you out of this country. Right, right. <laughs> Um, and that's a whole other episode. We should realistically, that's a great left unread. We should probably do an episode on that, but, um, for the time being, we don't really have time. Um, so this huge explosion of the population coupled with the economic realities of city life and the actual demand for labor, uh, which was not as high as all the people in the countryside flooding in expected. There's not enough jobs for everybody. There are lots of jobs, but there are not enough jobs for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, leads to a deep and worsening poverty, um, which settles over these these poor urban areas like Whitechapel that are sort of surrounding central London. And so these bleak circumstances push many women and men, though this is, is less documented because social conventions in Victorian England were uh, not inclined to acknowledge uh, sexuality, especially sexuality outside of the quote-unquote norm, um, leads lots of men and women into sex work to survive. Yeah. Um, and for this story in particularly, this story in particular, female sex workers are going to be a focus. So by 1888, there's approximately 80,000 residents of Whitechapel alone, just as like a small Jesus borough Christ. of East London. Yeah. Uh, contemporary estimates state that at least 12,000 of these 80,000 people were prostitutes, and at least 69 brothels were in operation. So nice. I mean, that's an insane figure. Yeah. Uh, this was. This was. Not, it wasn't officially a red light district, but people knew Close that. Close like, to 10% of the people there were, yeah. were prostitutes. If you wanted to get laid, you could go to Whitechapel. More than 10%. More, more, yeah, more, more, more. Sorry. Um, there were, of course, also many pubs, workhouses, uh, shops with every conceivable service from cobblers to barbers. But for the purposes of our story, we're going to focus on the illicit side of things, which was a huge part of industry in Whitechapel. Um, So this should all paint the picture of what a modern listener might consider, uh, quote, classic Dickensian London. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's overcrowded, it's impoverished, caked with soot, choked by smoke. There's a multitude of chimneys and factory smokestacks and um, absolutely packed with unfortunate souls just struggling daily to survive in an unforgiving and and generally violent new era. Um, And people haven't quite adapted to this yet. They haven't been molded to the the, the capitalist grind like we have. Mm -hmm. They don't quite understand what it is to toil away in misery and sell your labor for the right to live. But there is a uh, lot of revolutionary potential. There is. <laughs> right? There is. All those uh, proletariat working side by side. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> go on and on and on and on and on about Victorian London because this subject as a whole is completely fascinating like murders aside um, and I feel like there's always more to learn every time I learn anything about this era um, I could talk about the evolutionary science of Charles Darwin and the lucrative imperialist brutality of the British Raj in India. Mm-hmm. I could talk about the societal repression of women and sexuality and the explosion of journalism and the newspaper. Uh, I could talk about the development of the modern police force and the fine or often non-existent line between those who enforce the law and those who break it. 
Um, and in some ways, many of these things are going to end up playing a role in the tale that we're going to tell. But they could also make up an entire series in their own right. And, yeah. and unfortunately, this is an episodic show. So for now, we're not going to talk about all these things in super great detail. Um, we're going to kind of set them aside. And they'll come back to the story, some of them in certain respects. But we're going to zoom in on the tensions and the violence that were brewing in Whitechapel. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, Whitechapel was fucking horrible uh, in, in a lot of ways in the late 19th century. Yeah, uh, It's estimated that more than 50% Jeez. of children that were born in the area died before the age of five, which is a mortality rate among children that's incomprehensible to the modern mind. Yeah, uh, just, just an absurd amount of child mortalities. Um, robberies, rapes, assaults, and, and frankly murder were relatively commonplace, as was an increase of dependence on alcohol, namely gin, which was a relatively new innovation and was incredibly cheap. You could buy gin. Uh, gin was cheaper than beer. Gin was cheaper than wine. Gin was cheaper than anything. The original um, flavored vodka. The original flavored vodka, which was available to these people before vodka. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Gin is sort of like a, a uniquely British... Invention, it's it's, but it is the original flavored vodka. You're yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. right. Um, and also narcotics like opium, which was another relatively recent innovation in London. Um, through there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, imperial. being in this fucking shit pool, I would need to be like supremely fucked up at all hours of the day. A hundred percent. Yeah, I don't blame any of these people for indulging. Yeah, whatever gets day. you to the fucking <laughs> the cemetery earliest. Absolutely. Um, so civil unrest is on the rise. There's a large influx of Irish and Jewish immigrants leading to outbursts of anti-Semitic and nativist violence, like nativist movements um, were getting really big in England, nativists being people that believed, and this is going to sound really familiar, uh, believed that uh, only native British people, whatever the fuck that means, had a right to the jobs and the prosperity of the land. Um, As people Jeffrey were tells us, to that's only the Welsh. Right, exactly. Um, British workers are, are pointing to all of these newcomers uh, as the cause of their financial woes, blaming them for stealing the jobs because they're willing to work for less. And does any of this sound familiar? You know what I mean? Like, this has always been a tactic of uh, racists, basically, to kind of further their bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's also always uh, what the ruling class foments. You know, uh, you know, working class division along those stupid lines instead of, you know, who's really at fault. Uh. Yeah, and notably during this period, and we don't go too much into it in this part, we will in part two of this episode, um, the ruling class is, is, is pretty silent about all of this at this time. Uh, I don't give a um, they're, they're not... So we're, we're, we're really used to the ruling class fomenting things like this. And mm -hmm. at this point, we're, we're still dealing with this sort of uh, aloof aristocratic nobility who actually just, like, believe that they don't have time for this. Yeah. And all of this is considered beneath them. So they're not necessarily, like, spurring this on. And there might be particular examples that I'm unaware of. But yeah. even worse, they're kind of just ignoring it. Like, they don't really care. You know, the dirty people are fighting down below, and that's going to kind of just figure itself out like it always has. And uh, to me, that's almost like more dystopian and upsetting. Um, but, you know, again, that's another topic. Mm -hmm. um, police presence was also greatly increased in the east end of London, and foot patrolmen would generally refuse to travel this area by themselves. They would <laughs> go in groups of three or four uh, to avoid being jumped and, and having the shit kicked out of them or being robbed or being killed. 
Um, but don't feel too bad for them. Uh, this is not a pro-police podcast uh, because they were hardly innocents themselves. Uh, police shakedowns, brutality, racketeering, all the things you can imagine police doing to abuse their power, incredibly commonplace. It's all especially. baked right in. <laughs> yes. Um, and so basically Whitechapel is like the wild, wild east. Like everything east of London Center is just fucking psychotic. And if you're part of this city at this time, you're living an absolutely batshit life. Um, <laughs> public perception <laughs> public perception among the upper classes held that the area ass, bro. Fuck oh, this place. dude like, it's, I can't it's, even imagine just the like absolute like sensory overload like at oh, every moment yeah. of every day you just like sights must, and smells man yeah just like every every sense that you're that's like hitting your brain is just an assault on dignity Completely. I would just be um, drinking opium straight until I pass out every <laughs> single day. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people chose that yeah, route. Fuck it, yeah. um, it was it, it was right it was pretty it. bad. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And uh, a lot of the sources that I looked at, um, whether it be articles or or listening to um, some, I listened to a book on tape or or, or a couple of podcasts. People repeatedly describe this era of London as like living in a nightmare. Like it's yeah. literally as depraved and and horrible and stressful as you can possibly imagine. I People mean, I, th- just... I think Victorian era lo- uh, London literally is the inspiration for Bloodborne, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So. Oh, it it 100 percent is. It's, yeah. it's a horrific, a horrific place, um, and it gets remembered by posterity as being like the center of like a golden age empire. But it was like a filthy yeah on the filthy estates outside <laughs> outside of London. I'm sure the estates, yeah. but yeah, really bad. Um, so public perception among the upper classes holds that the area was a horrible, grotesque hive of scum <laughs> and villainy, as we talked. Not entirely yeah. unlike most Eisley spaceport. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Yep. Uh, the perceived inability of the police to curb the increasing wave of violence and tension in the area leads to uh, press cover- covering the region extensively, um, both deriding the violence and depredation itself and the coppers for being so seemingly incompetent. Um, and it was against this backdrop that the killing started. Hell yeah. Now, that walk, uh-huh, ooh, Sunday morning, uh uh-huh, lies a body. Just oozing life And someone sneaking Round the corner Could that someone Be Mac the Knife so everyone has heard the name Jack the Ripper, uh, but the events surrounding the actual murders and whether or not they were actually all committed by the same person are not so clearly understood. Uh, between 1888 and 1891, a series of 11 particularly gruesome murders of women who are mostly sex workers took place in the borough. Uh, these have come to be known as the Whitechapel murders. They are, these are not the only murders to take place in yeah, Whitechapel. I'm sure they're uh, not. Pe- not even close. People are going to hear this and be like, 11 murders? That's not so crazy. No. But these 11 murders were all of females, and they were almost all or probably all sex workers. A couple of them couldn't be proven. Yeah. Um, or, like, were maybe, like, you know, reformed or whatever, but... Generally, they're women who are in that world, and they all had a particularly violent, gruesome bent to them. Um, so it's not to say that there weren't, like, regular old, you know, uh, barroom brawls where people got shot and stabbed and things like that. That was yeah. incredibly commonplace. Uh, there were many, many murders. But 
this particular set of 11 murders are kind of what's going to concern us. Um, at one point or another, all of these murders have been ascribed to Jack the Ripper. Um, and indeed, many of them share common characteristics, which we're going to explore in greater detail in a little bit. Um, but it should be noted that more than a century of forensic investigation and conjecture uh, focused on this case have come yeah. to the likely conclusion that perhaps half or more of these killings were the work of copycats or opportunists capitalizing on the hysteria of the day, and that the, quote, true Ripper likely faded back into the shadows before 1888 had even come to a close. Uh, only five of the 11 Whitechapel murders are currently considered to be canonical, which is the term that uh, ripper, ripperologists, which is what people that study this, it's a really lame term, but that's what they call themselves. Ripperologists? Um, yeah. There's five canonicals. There's five canonical murders that are that are pretty much across the board considered to have been committed by one person, yep. um, and those are those are the true Jack the Ripper murders, and everything else is a mystery. Yeah. Um, some of them may have been, some of them may not have been, and we'll get into that. Um, but I'm going to to briefly discuss them all over the course of these two episodes, um, and so I'm I'm, I'm going to dive in. Um, so the first two murders, those of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram, are generally not considered by the modern researcher to be Ripper murders, um, mainly because they do not fit the eventual modus operandi, which is going to be established. So these were the first ones? These are the first two murders of the Whitechapel murders. Okay. But these first two are not now considered to be Ripper so murders. So these ones, now, so they wouldn't even be copycats then? No. These are, these are actually, they're yeah. lumped in. And at the time, people thought that they were the, the Ripper. Yeah. Modern forensic science and investigation has led people to suspect that, well, in the case, of, you'll see. In the case of the first, they kind of knew then that it wasn't. Okay. In the case of the second, it's actually still kind of open-ended, but they're not considered canon Ripper okay. murders. Um, they may have been, but probably were not. Um, there is an eventual M.O., which we'll come to discuss greatly over the course of these two episodes, um, by which the true Jack the Ripper uh, likely operated, yep. um, which involved some very specific calling cards, and neither of these murders exhibit that. Uh, okay. They do, however, display an extreme level of violence, uh, as do all of the Whitechapel murders. The reason that the Whitechapel murders are all lumped together is because they are all graphic and extremely brutal. Um, so as if you weren't expecting this on an episode about Jack the Ripper, um, but consider this your fair and due warning, because Evan and I do not revel in this type of shit like some podcasts do, but we are absolutely going to discuss particulars, because yeah. you know it wouldn't be a, a worthwhile exploration if we didn't. Um, so, on Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888, mm -hmm. at approximately 1.30 a.m., okay. Emma Elizabeth Smith is walking around the corner of Osborne Street and Brick Lane in Whitechapel, likely looking for Johns, which is just a colloquial term for, for clients for a prostitute. Yeah. Uh, so she's 45 years old and a sex worker, um, widely known to other women in the area. Uh, she was jumped by two or three male assailants. Yeah. Ooh. So she's viciously beaten and she's sexually assaulted with a blunt object. Um, and also raped, but something is inserted into her. She survives. Uh, she makes her way back to the lodging house where she was staying before she collapses. Now, this is very common. People would stay in these pay-by-the-night flop houses where you're basically paying for, like, a shitty flea-bitten bed. And a lot of these, these women who, you know, you're going to see a lot of them are older. 
Um, they weren't prostitutes in their youth. They were married and had become divorced or had been left or had been abandoned or their husbands had died. And for a variety of reasons, they were unable to support themselves outside of selling their bodies. Um, and so they ended up in these circumstances where they were basically going out and, and having sex for money just to pay for a place to sleep at night. Yeah, just um, to, to sleep in one of those, like, the, the little floor coffin things that they had, yeah. too. Ugh. Horrible. Horrible. Like, they're getting bit by rats and shit. <clears throat> so she walks away from this. She she gets back to the lodging house, um, and there's actually a surgeon that works in this house, and he... he, he um, he finds that in the course of her assault, her peritoneum had been pierced, which is the wall that separates your orifices from your inter- internal like organs yeah. and your abdomen. Um, so she rapidly develops peritonitis, um, and she dies the next morning of her injuries. That leads to very rapid infection and, and death. Um, but she did manage to say that she was attacked by a gang of men. So she she said that it was multiple people that attacked her. She didn't give a description. She couldn't name names. She passed out and then died. Um, but for that reason alone, it's it's generally considered that this was not a ripper murder. But it was such a brutal attack, and it sort of heralded things to come, and it's still lumped in with the Whitechapel murders. Oh, fucking sucks. Yeah. So a few months later, August 6th, 1888, uh, Martha Tabram, who's 39, is drinking in the Angel and Crown public house with her friend, Mary Ann Connolly, who's also a sex worker, and two soldiers. Uh, the group splits up, each woman taking one of them as a client uh, at about 11.45 p.m., and they head off down the street to find a dark corner um, to do the deed. They settle on George Yard, uh, which is a narrow alley. Or rather, I'm sorry, so Martha Tabram and her client settle on George Yard, which is a little alley, yeah. and Connolly and her client choose an adjoining alley, so close by. Um, fast forward to 2 a.m., a local woman is awoken by someone shouting murder. Um, but because this is such a commonplace thing in this area, people yelling, there being assaults, there being murders, she kind of wakes up and is like, oh, fuck, and goes right back to sleep. Is it me? Um, no, it's not me. All right. Not me. <laughs> which is really sad and really cynical, yeah. but... Whatever it is, what I mean, it what is. are you gonna do if it's happening constantly every fucking night? Exactly. Um, at three thirty a.m., a patrolling constable questions a soldier that he finds loitering around the area, uh, and reply. And this soldier replies that he's quote waiting for a friend. Um, and at the exact same time, at three thirty, a local cab driver returning home after a night's work notices Tabram's body slumped over a, a flight of stairs. But in the dim light, he assumes that she's like a drunk vagrant who's sleeping it off. Uh-huh. Uh, and it isn't for another hour and a half at five a.m. that a dock worker coming home discovers the body, sees it in the in the new morning light, and realizes it's a dead woman. And he calls over a constable. Uh, after examination by a doctor, it's found that she's been stabbed 39 times in the neck, lungs, heart, spleen, liver, stomach, and genitals and left for dead. There's no obvious evidence that she's had sex or been assaulted. Um, obviously, these are not like modern forensic scientists, but they, they don't find evidence that she's been raped or even had sex that night. Her estranged husband comes by and identifies her body. Uh, several soldiers, for obvious reasons, were questioned. The other woman that she was out drinking with um, corroborates her story and says, like, while well, we were drinking with women, whatever, people get brought in. But nobody's ever tried for her murder. Uh, everybody provides an alibi. 
And she's not considered a canon victim, uh, but there is actually a strong possibility, especially when you talk about her versus the previous victim, that she might be the first Ripper victim. Um, she doesn't fit the eventual MO, but the location and the level of violence are, are strong potential indicators that this was somebody who was gearing up for something more intense. Like, um, like and now we're going to get to... Is the assumption that the soldier killed her? So at the time, the assumption was that she was killed by a soldier. Um, yeah, who yeah. either was upset that uh, she was trying to cheat him out of money or that she asked him for more money and then wouldn't put out, whatever. But ultimately, nobody was nobody was found guilty. And you're, I was going to mention it later, but a lot of the records, a lot of the firsthand accounts of this, uh, these investigations were destroyed in the Blitz when the Germans bombed London in 40 and 41. So... We're working with partial evidence for a lot of this stuff. All we know for sure is that nobody was arrested. Um, so nobody was found to be guilty for this. And again, these are not modern investigative techniques, but um, nobody got brought in. Uh, so now we're going to talk about the first few of, of the canonical five murders. So we're talking about what we now know to be Jack the Ripper. So on Friday, August 31st, 1888, at 3.40 a.m., the body of Mary Ann Nichols, aged 43, is found by a coachman named Charles Allen Cross. Believing the body to be a crumpled piece of tarp, Nick, uh, Cross approached the fi crumpled figure in front of a stable on Bucks Row. He called over another driver that was passing and then a passing constable, and they all examined the body. Initially unsure if she was dead or merely unconscious, they noted that while her hands were cold, her face was still warm. Uh, her throat was then found to have been cut, and she was brought to a doctor who discovered that two throat lacerations, one reaching so deep that it touched the vertebrae of her neck, Jesus were the likely cause Christ. of death. Yeah, she got killed bad. Uh, though she had also been bludgeoned about the face, and her genitals and abdomen had been viciously cut. This was likely done after she was dead due to the small amount of blood found at the scene. Uh, she had likely been facing her attacker when he had struck her, put his hand over her mouth, then reached across and slit her throat twice, killing her instantly. Uh, again, they found that the wounds in her abdomen were probably done after she was dead because there wasn't a lot of blood splatter lying around. Um, but it would have taken only about five minutes for the killer to complete the mutilation of her body and then flee the scene. And then uh, Saturday, September 8th at 6 a.m., same year, uh, the body of Annie Chapman, age 47, is found on the steps near the back doorway at 29 Hanbury Street. Later interviews found that she had tried to get lodging for the night at the local lodging house, but she lacked the funds. Uh, at around midnight, she drank a beer and ate a baked potato uh, with one of the fellow lodgers before taking some pills that she had on her. Uh, we don't know what those were, probably pain pills, uh, and informing a fellow lodger to hold a bed for her because she was going to leave, but she intended to come back with the money to pay for the bed. Now, assuming that she was going to go out and try to, you know, have sex for money and then come back with the money for a bed. Uh, at 6 a.m. later that morning, an elderly resident of the neighborhood finds her body. She was found to have many of the same wounds as Marianne Nichols, uh, two deep left-to-right slash wounds to the neck with a blade of apparently similar size. Uh, her stomach had also been cut open, okay. uh, but her, her intestines had been pulled out of her stomach and slung over her shoulders. Uh, her uterus, bladder, and parts of her vagina had been removed What's and were not found at or near the scene. 
uh, a local woman, claimed to have seen Chapman at about 5.30, so only about a half an hour before, yeah. huddled in conversation with a dark-haired man in a deerstalker hat. So think like a Sherlock Holmes yeah, hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the man was said to have whispered, will you? And Chapman replied, yes, before disappearing into the night or the early morning. Uh, this description gave rise to the first concrete image of a potential subject. So it's clear to the police that these two most recent murders of Chapman and Nichols are most likely linked. Uh, the savagery of their attacks combined with the matching elements of the killer's modus operandi, which again wasn't like a thing that they talked about at the time. There wasn't a concept of serial killers, but these police were beginning to innovate modern investigative techniques, which we'll talk a little bit more about, especially in the next episode. Um, and they can see, obviously, that like these two these two attacks are clearly linked. Um, and so it's it's clear that a repeat offender is on the loose. So now we're going to take a little bit of a break from describing horrible murder. We'll talk about yeah, the rest of them in the shit, next episode because um, it gets worse, uh, believe it or not. They, they don't get better. They get worse. Um, but now we're going to start talking about the public response to these attacks, um, which is going to lead us into the next episode. Uh, it's, it's important to note that the vast majority of British metropolitan police files, as I said, were destroyed in the Blitz in 1940 to 41. Um, a lot of primary source material is gone. We do have a good amount to work with still, but if you're wondering like how we know certain things, whatever, um, I'm working with the fairly limited stuff that I found in the articles that I read. I wish there were more details out there. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the specifics of the investigation are, are gone. And we have secondhand stuff that was reprinted in newspapers, things like that. But the actual Metropolitan Police files were unfortunately blown to shit by the Nazis. Um, so following these first four murders, increasing levels of investigation and police presence sweep through Whitechapel. Uh, once the probability of a repeat offender was established, giving the police a, a boogeyman to hunt, public outcry pushed them into greater action, and a massive number of witness interviews were conducted, which is where we get a lot of the preceding information um, about people's whereabouts, what their names were, who they were, where they were, what they were doing, yeah. um, the fact that they were prostitutes. All of that comes from extensive interviewing. Um, the, the Whitechapel Metropolitan Police Department, which is a part of the greater London uh, Metropolitan Police, and uh, it should, in, in the UK um, now, but this had, I think, been established by 1888, there's just one national police force. And local municipalities have their own branches, but um, it's not separated like it is here in the States. They don't have different states with state police and this and that. Um, there is... The Metropolitan Police yeah. and whatever. Um, so they have their own criminal investigation department, which is a relatively, at the time, modern innovation. And it's headed by Detective Inspector Edmund Reed. And they're handling the initial investigation. Uh, but after the murder of Nichols, which is the second of those two canon murders, the one we just talked about where her innards were slung over her shoulder, et cetera, et cetera. Ah, I know. Um, Scotland Yard, which is just the term for their central division, like – Scotland Yard is where the police headquarters in London is located, and so that's what they call them, Scotland Yard. Um, sort of like we call the FBI Quantico 
Um, yeah. They send or the three CIA Langley. Right. Yeah. Uh, they send three experienced detectives named Frederick Aberline, who is going to come back more than the other three, Henry Moore, and Walter Andrews to assist. Uh, initial suspects include anyone with experience in surgery or butchery. Uh, the precision with which the wounds had been inflicted upon Nichols and Chapman, especially considering the speed with which they were performed in near total darkness, led the medical examiners and police to conclude that whoever was attacking these women had some degree of anatomical expertise and a rather steady hand. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't probably just some guy off the street who had never seen a dead body before. Yeah, he um, knew what he was doing. These, these attacks were all completed in around five to ten minutes, yeah. and there was a pretty precise level of, of technical ability involved, okay. as gross as that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is also a major reason why the first two Whitechapel murders aren't generally ascribed to the same killer that we now know as Jack the Ripper. Uh, they certainly contain the brutality and the violence, but they lack the specific MO and the apparent technical ability uh, shown in Victims 3, 4, It was five, just like wild six, stabbing. Seven. Right. Um, whereas the second two, Chapman and Nichols, are, are sort of methodically taken apart by somebody. Yeah. Um, basically, I mean, yeah, at this point, if you're cutting out, like, what did I say before, like, the uterus and the bladder were, like, cut out, yeah. you know where yeah. to go for that. <laughs> they, they moved, they didn't cut out her intestines, they removed them out of the way, pulled yeah. out her, her female reproductive organs. Yeah. Um, so there's also, and we'll talk about this more in episode two, there's a specific level of female violence here. Yeah. Um, they're attacking... Her, her female-specific reproductive organs. It'll come back to that, but yeah. there's there's a pretty specific level of, of, of female-directed violence here. Uh-huh. Um, so basically everyone under the sun is a suspect. Uh, some claimed that the killer would be local um, due to the apparent knowledge and the use of the dark back streets and the proximity of all the victims. Mm-hmm. Others, for the same reasons basically, thought that it must be someone from uh, an aristocratic family from out of the neighborhood due mm-hmm. to the apparent medical training. Um, okay. At the time, there was this well-known like local ruffian who people called Leather Apron or The Leather Apron. And this was basically a guy who would come up on prostitutes in the night, behind them, put a knife to their neck, and say, like, if you don't give me all the money you just earned, I'm going to cut you to fucking pieces. Jesus Christ, man. Come they on. Would, they would pay him, and he would just leave. Like, he didn't kill people. He generally didn't hurt people. Yeah. And he would be wearing a thick leather apron, which was really common uh, in the trades at the time. So anyone from a butcher to a cobbler to a carpenter would all be wearing this leather apron. So yep. seeing that in Whitechapel, it doesn't give people much to work on. Okay. Um, and again, this guy generally, like people knew of him. He was, he was infamous in the area, but if you paid him, he would leave. He yeah. didn't have a history of killing people. He would threaten to hurt you if you didn't pay him. You would pay him. He would go. Yeah. Uh, various publications have a field day. They post famous cartoons showcasing potential suspect types, uh, mocking the police's inability to prevent the attacks or catch the killer. Uh, certain individuals are outright named in these articles, despite Jesus. like little or no evidence. Um, one particular example is this guy named John Pizer, who is a shoemaker, um, who gets written about in multiple articles as just like an ugly, like shifty, untrustworthy guy who just probably did it. Um, and he had actually previously been a suspect in these leather apron assaults. Um, 
And a local police sergeant fingered him in an interview as like a potential suspect, and the papers just ran with it, and they printed his name. And he ended up reading that, and his yeah. brothers were basically like, listen, man, you used to run with a gang when you were a kid. They're not going to care that you're innocent. They, they need somebody to hang. They're just going to fucking find you and hang you. So get the fuck out of Whitechapel. So he ran, yeah. and he was shacking up with his brothers when the cops eventually found him, and they were like, don't you see how this makes you look guilty? And there's this great interview where he's like, uh, yeah, except you know that I used to be a criminal. Uh, none of the evidence actually points to me, but you need someone to hang. So don't you see how I find you very suspicious? And they were like, all right, well, give us an alibi. And he, he was actually able to provide rock solid alibis with like multiple eyewitnesses to his whereabouts. Turns out he was not present for any of the killings because he okay. ran away. Yeah, yeah. Um, he may have been Leather Apron, but he was not Jack the Ripper. Yeah, because then, luckily for him, unluckily for the victims, Jack the Ripper would keep killing, and he was like, hey, yes. check it out, I'm over here, man. Yes. <laughs> so this this guy did have a criminal past and was like, we don't know that he was a nice guy, but he, he wasn't guilty of these murders. Um, people even put forth the, the premise that maybe a member of the royal family who was just, like, demented and hiding behind, like, the cloak of official power was committing the murders, like, just to get their rocks off. Um, which is interesting, but like there wasn't. They wouldn't uh, have that's to, sort hide of, to kill these people. <laughs> they could just do that's, it out in the open. <laughs> that's sort of the premise of the the awesome Alan Moore comic from Hell, which is oh, yeah. awesome, but like not. It's not like a historical source, so don't. Yeah. And there's also a really shitty uh, uh, Johnny Depp movie based on that comic. Yeah. Um, oh wait, did I see that? Yeah, it's actually kind of worth watching, but it's not like a good movie. Yeah. Um, and that that kind of toys with that idea a little bit too. There's a lot of conspiracies surrounding this, but um, none of these are shown, at least at the time, to be uh, to, to hold much water. Um, one of the famous satirical magazines at the time is called Punch Magazine, and they publish <laughs> the now famous uh, Nemesis of Neglect cartoon, which if you look up Jack the Ripper on Google Images, and we're going to use it for the image for this episode, so you, you see this really great... What did you say? So I said, so you can look at our image. Yes, exactly. Look at our image. Um, and it's this sort of horrific gape mod phantom holding a knife stalking the streets of London, um, and it represents like just like... The, the, he's got the word crime just written in big letters Hell on his yeah, forehead, yeah. right? And it represents, like, the inability of the cops to, to check the, the, the general violence sweeping the area. Um, so the public is terrified and furious. And so in this same month after these two murders, a citizen vigilante group is formed to protect Whitechapel from this prowling murderer. Uh, it's chaired by this guy named George Lusk, who's going to come back later in, in, in part two. Um, he's a local builder and interior decorator. Um, and these this group, they pool financial resources and they put together these patrols made up of uh, unemployed local men who have nothing better to do. Um, and they give them... Um, uh, they give them police whistles and nightsticks and just send them out every night to like walk the streets and and attempt to kind of catch the killer or prevent attacks. And they also start writing letters to Parliament appealing for aid, but um, the government is sort of disinterested and doesn't really do anything about it at the yeah. time, um, which also makes people really upset. Uh, so in the midst of all this chaos, something unprecedented and miraculous happens, uh, which would was hitherto unknown, but which would become a common calling card for other serial murderers in years to come. Uh, an envelope arrives at the Central News Agency in London, signed and dated in red ink. My name is... Yes, 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 yes,
So on September 25th, 1888, 17 days after the body of the most recent victim, Annie Chapman, has been discovered, the Central News Agency, which is sort of a, a, a contemporary version of like Reuters or the Associated Press, yeah. they don't. They're not a newspaper, but they send reporters out to like gather shit, and then they sell their scoops to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they receive a two-page letter, handwritten in what appears to be red ink, and filled with typos and grammatical errors. Uh, I'm just going to read you What's the letter this dude that they the received. The fucking uh, the uh, um, the zodiac. I yeah, like to kill it, people. It's better than getting your rocks off with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, buckle up, because like this guy is the OG. Like yeah. he's he's the. Uh, He's, he's the guy who, who started this whole genre. Yeah. Um, so here's the letter. Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and I want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get a work right away, and if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. So notably, uh, this is the first use of the now infamous moniker Jack the Ripper. This is where the name comes from. There were a lot of other names. They called him Leather Ape and they called him the Whitechapel Killer. But yeah. um, Jack the Ripper stuck because Honestly, Ripper good on him. Is, that's a pretty, that's pretty yeah, it's good a great name. name. Um, Ripper is fucking brutal. Yeah, talking about ripping people up, which is really what he was doing. Yeah, and Jack at the time was was commonly associated with like um, kids. And yeah. fairy tales and things like that. So it's this, like, really great mix of, like, innocence and really intense brutality. And it just sort of stuck. And um, people rolled with it. And so now he becomes Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, so though eerie, the letter, was, the letter was initially dismissed as a hoax. Um, and it was neither published nor forwarded to the police or really publicized in any way once they received it. Um, in fact, nobody thought much of it at all. That is, until five days later, when the next body is found. And this time... One of her ears has been partially removed. And nobody's seen this letter. So they're wondering, is this real?
Um, so that's it for this week. I'm sorry to leave you guys all on a cliffhanger, uh, but I realized as I was finishing this up or, or finishing up part one that like the story is just way too big to fix into one to squeeze into one episode. Yeah, I understand why um, you split it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it. I mean, we're at a, an hour and nine minutes. I could have either right. gone for two hours tonight or we could make two nice hour long episodes. Out yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. Um, two hour episodes. <laughs> Not yeah, often. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly, and it, and it, it just worked. It worked better this way. So yeah. um, we'll leave off here. We'll be back in two weeks with the conclusion to the harrowing tale from the secret, secret cobweb encrusted the secret cool wish we backwit vaults of the just a little whipple. <laughs> Jack the whipple, mate. I'm just a um, little small bean whipper. Just a little small bean. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> Evan's got next week, and then in two weeks we'll be back and we'll finish up yeah. the tale of Jack the Ripper, which I'm mostly done writing. I just I couldn't bring myself to force us through uh, doing oh, the whole thing in one episode. Lucky, dude, so. you got a few weeks off, and you just had a few yeah. weeks off. Yeah, well, it, t- it was a lot of work. I basically yeah. sat here in my little dungeon all day working on this. So yeah, um, I hope you guys liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? It's cool. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's fucking gruesome. But, uh, and so, I mean, I'm not going to, in your own time, I'm not going to do any, any of the work of sharing any of the images, but photography had been invented at this point. And there are pictures of some of his victims. Um, if you are brave enough to Google them, they're, they're fucked up. Yeah. I'm um, going to look guy at was, them after this while I put on the yeah. Sox game. A he nice, was a um, nice little quiet night watching baseball and looking at yeah, gruesome, Jack the Ripper victims. <laughs> gruesome Jack the Ripper photo. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really bad. He, uh. He took these women apart. It was it was really intense. So, yeah. anyway, um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, yeah, yeah. As always, um, you can check us out on all of your local podcast directories. Uh, we appreciate all of the attention, all of the listens. Please give us a, a five star rating if you can, yep. um, or follow us, or just any way that you can tell people about us. Tell people about us. Um, you can find us on Podbean, and you can find all of Evan's awesome images um, <laughs> or on Instagram. I think we're going to start sharing those. Uh, links yeah. to Twitter and to where we get all of our awesome music from can be found on the episode description. Yeah, and uh, I do want to give a shout-out to Matt. Speaking of the Instagram, I finally logged into it for the first time followed oh, him. Oh, man. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, only took me uh, yeah. um, posting about 20 straight of your episodes before you guys followed me back. I Thanks, told him, man. I was like, dude, I just got a follow back, and I literally made this account. <laughs> I, like, I work on this show. I just got followed at the same time as you, so please yeah. don't feel bad. But he was he was not stoked about that. <laughs> uh, I, got, I got a message. Or, no, I sent him a message because right. I saw that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, hang tight because we'll be back in a couple weeks with more Jack the Ripper. But listen next week because I don't know what Evan's got in store. Well, I do, but I'm not going to spoil yeah. it. And uh, it's going to be say, something totally different. Yeah, it's one of the rare times where, at least for now, the good guys have won. So, yeah, yeah, we're going to tell a story about about the good guys winning, which I'm excited about. Okay. Um, spoiler alert: with Jack the Ripper, the bad guy wins. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we will see you guys soon. Have a great night. Later. Peace. Yeah.